the book of Philippians. Turn there with me, family. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't have the Word of God, you can take one with you. Take it home, of course, if you don't have one. And um, we are in the book of Philippians. We're calling our sermon series, as you know, the Gospel Joy. The book of Philippians, Gospel Joy, because true and everlasting joy in any and all circumstances is found only in the Gospel. His name is Jesus. So we are in chapter 2 today. Um, And this morning, uh, in chapter 2, we're going to see one of the most beautiful beautifully written descriptions of the humility and the deity and the majesty of Jesus, our great God and Savior. It is quite a daunting task. Actually, we're just going to, we could stay in this text for six months, and I am not kidding. Um, but we're going to do it in one, one morning, at least scratch the surface. So let me read to you Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which is our scripture text. Hear the word of God. Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews, we were in Hebrews. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let Each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. Let me quickly bring you up to speed Our text this morning is not without context, and it's important that we understand that in chapter 1, we learn that the church of Philippi, a church that Paul had planted some year, some about 10 years earlier, had received a monetary gift. Paul had received a monetary gift by the hand of Epaphrodites. Paul is now under house arrest because of the gospel. He's chained to a Roman soldier day in and day, day and night. Epaphrodites brings him this monetary gift that he needs. And, um, and it's helpful for him as he lives in, in this house arrest. And I'm sure that Epaphrodites brought him news about the church. And now Paul, filled with joy, is writing to them and sending this letter back with Epaphrodites to Philippi. The church, excuse me, the theme of chapter 1 is Paul's joy, it's the theme of the letter, joy, in their participation and advancement of the gospel together with Paul, this church, in part because of his suffering, which we learned, uh, and his imprisonment has propelled them and advanced the gospel in that area. The gospel is being preached, Paul says, some have good, some out of goodwill, some with envy and strife, in order to bring distress upon Paul, but it doesn't matter to Paul. Paul's like, the gospel is being preached, and I will rejoice in that. Why? Chapter 1, verse 20, he says, I'm not going to be ashamed. With full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether life or death, 
For me, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So Paul's life, his meaning, his, his, his foundation in his life is loving, serving, glorifying, and enjoying fellowship and advancement of the gospel. And fellowship with Jesus and advancement of the gospel. No wonder Paul is filled with joy as Christ is being known. That's his joy. That's his life. We said last week that Paul moved from his situation to words of exhortation. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says, whether I, whether I see you or not, I'm in chains, I, I plan to come back, whether I see you or not, just remember this one important thing, verse 27, let your manner of life, your citizenship, be worthy of the gospel. Paul says, if we conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel, it will show up in unity. Chapter, 21, uh, verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 27 continues this way. Manner of life, citizenship, worthy of the gospel, so that when I come and see you're absent, I may hear that you are what? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul does not mean that we are to somehow live in such a way that we become worthy of the gospel, somehow earning our salvation, that's impossible. But rather, unity will happen because of the gospel, through the gospel. What Paul is going to show us today is that the motivation... That the motivation for living in a manner worthy of the gospel, citizens worthy of the gospel that will bring unity, is the application of the gospel. Because the application of the gospel will bring humility. And without humility, there can be no unity. Okay, so that's where we're headed. So that's where this text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, comes from. So we'll see it. Two main headings. The first heading we'll see, uh, verses 1 through 5, 1 through, well, one through 4, uh, is the exhortation of Paul for this unity. He wants to see unity in the church. We'll see the essentials, the essence, and the expression of unity. I'll put it up later if you don't need to write it down. And then the second main part as we get into verse 6, verse 5 and 6 through verse 11, is the example of Christ in his humility. Okay, exhortation for unity, example in humility. We'll see the declaration of the deity of Christ. The, the condescension is his leaving and coming to earth. And then the exaltation of his supremacy. So that's kind of where we're headed. Seems like a lot. We'll get through it uh, rather quickly. And uh, CDs are online. Uh, CDs you can get online if you want to uh, watch it again and say, what, what did he say? That was too fast. So it's there for you. Okay, so. Number one, so Paul is talking about unity. He understands the importance of unity in the church, particularly while there's dangers in persecution and suffering that Paul is under, as, as under a house arrest for the preaching of the gospel. Paul will go on to talk about the visions that happen outside the church and inside the church. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about those outside the church who would want to bring in the law into the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 2. And then he talked about the visions from within. He, he kind of shows his hand a little bit in chapter 4, verse 2. He says this, I entreat Judea and I entreat Synthiki to agree in the Lord. There must have been some, some, some kind of disagreement going on with these two ladies. And he says, help these women to get along, to have unity. 
So Paul starts chapter 2, verse 1, with this. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, comfort and love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by having, of the, same, having the same mind, have unity in the church. Now what you need to know here is the word if, NIV starts with if, ESV I think starts with so, so if. If sometimes could sound in the English, in our, in our language, not the Greek in the original language, as if there's some uncertainty, right? So if it, if it rains tomorrow, not sure, but if it does rain tomorrow, we won't be able to rake the leaves. That's not what it means here. In the original language, if here is, if such and such is true, I know that it is. In view of the facts is a good way to interpret that. So Paul is saying, in view of the facts of Christ, in view of that, there are, there are things that I want to exhort you that, that are essential for unity. Right? There's, there's an assurance. There is a, 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 a certainty as he begins with four ways that we'll see the essential the foundation for our unity. And the first thing you see here in our text is their encouragement in Christ. Encouragement is that word, you probably heard it in your Christian circles, paracletus. It's paraclesis, it comes, it's the words used of the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the comforter, the paraclete. Comes alongside you, he's, he's encouraging you, he's speaking for you, he's courageously speaking truth to you. It's, he's a comforter, not a, really a comforter, a not really a good word, actually. A counselor, a, a, an advocate. Encouragement in Christ. In Christ is one of the, I think, one of the uh, most favorite terms used of Paul to speak about our, our, our belonging to and identification with Christ. It speaks, in Christ speaks of our union with Christ, our vital union and closeness with God. Well, Paul is saying you have the support, you have the help of God, Almighty God, and that should be an encouragement to you. What could be more encouraging to us as believers to be in union with Christ, to have God Almighty encouraging and, and, and working for us and in us? In fact, our union with Christ, the scripture tells us that even that we were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2, God made us alive with Christ and it's by grace we've been raised up and saved with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All that belongs to him belongs to us. What an encouragement. And if you notice right off the bat, unity doesn't just happen. Paul is saying it's a byproduct of the truths of the gospel, that we are in union with Christ by grace alone doesn't happen automatically. Unity doesn't happen automatically or effortlessly. It only happens in relation to the gospel, in union with Christ. Second, he says, any comfort from love. If you have an NIV, it says any comfort from his love, and I think that's accurate. Love produces the comfort. It's God's love in our hearts that create and generate tenderness, love. In us. And Paul reminds us and, and them to, to, to find comfort knowing that God's eternal love is upon us. It, it is by God's love that we should then be motivated to live in unity with one another. Comforting in Christ, love of God. D.L. Moody said this. This is funny. He says, There are two ways to be united together one is being frozen together, and the other is being melted together common experience of Christ's love in the gospel should unite believers 
The common love for Christ should cause them to love one another. We're united with Christ. And we realize that we are loved unconditionally and that Christ loves me unconditionally and loves you unconditionally. We share in that love. We share in that love. In fact, the love of God is what's poured out in our hearts, the Bible says, through the power of the Spirit, the transforming work of the gospel. Jesus said, I give you a command, right? A new command, love one another as I have loved you. How do I love my brothers and sisters? As I have loved you, you must love one another. Okay? Have encouragement, comfort, love, participation in the Spirit, number three. The word participation is that word we looked at in chapter 1, verse 5. Joint participation, common interest, active, active participation in the gospel, chapter 1, verse 5. Here he says it's the active participation, what? In the Holy Spirit. There's only one Spirit, one body of Christ. There can't be no factions and divisions. They have no place in the body of Christ. Paul's telling them that unity can happen through the Holy Spirit. But, but family, listen. Unity does not happen because God's Spirit dwells within you. Unity doesn't happen because God's, uni- God's Spirit dwells within you. It happens when God's Spirit controls you. Be ye filled with the Spirit continually. When we're being led by the Spirit, there can be unity. When we're making much of Christ in the Spirit, where the Spirit says, I will make much, I will make known, I will make much of Christ, Jesus taught the Holy Spirit. We're making much of Christ. There can be unity. And when that unity comes and the gospel comes, the unity of, of, of the encouragement and the love and the, 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 the producing of, of the greatness of Jesus, there'll be unity in the church. Fourthly, he says, any affection and sympathy. Affection, sensitive to the needs of others, the heart, the desires. Sympathy, some of you have compassion. Feeling sorrowful. Compassion, not only feeling sorry, compassion, as we have Compassion International, it is, it is not only feeling the hurts of someone else, the pains of someone else, the, the struggles of someone else. Compassion is a component of that is when we look to elevate and alleviate, I should say, that from the other person. It, it, is a, it is something we do as well. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the gospel? Each one of us, if we, are, if we have been born again by the Spirit, we belong and we are believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've experienced God's affection, a heart of love toward us. We have, we have experienced His compassion, His desire and action to alleviate our brokenness, our separation, our sinfulness. We deserved hell, yet he dies for us. The Lord Jesus died in our place and for our sins. You and I know the great mercy of God, the divine compassion and mercy of God that comes from Jesus Christ himself in our salvation. And he says you have to pass that along to one another. The essentials for our unity is the fact that we are in Christ. We are loved by Christ. We have the Holy Spirit pointing us to Christ. We receive mercy through Christ and salvation. That's the essential of the ground. And now look at the essence of our unity in verse 2. Complete my joy. What does it look like? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, there are three separate things we're looking at. Essentials, essence, and expression. Three subpoints, but there's only one imperative. There's only one command. You know what that command is? Complete my joy. 
Paul says, complete my joy and, and be in, in unity together. Now, don't answer this out loud, but let me ask you all a question. If you were in jail, what would bring you great joy? Freedom. Maybe a good meal. I don't know, a visit now and again. Not Paul. He said his joy would be complete if the church was living and fulfilling his expectations of love and unity with one another. That's what I want to hear. I love how he weaves in, again, this, this theme of joy. He says, listen, the essence of it is, number one, like-mindedness. Be of, be of the same mind. It involves the intellect, the will, the emotion. It affects our attitude toward one another. This kind of harmony is like a piano. If you have 100 pianos all tuned by the same tuning fork, they're automatically tuned to each other, not by each other, but by another standard. The fork, the tuning fork. So when we live in harmony by having our minds not tuned by our own thinking, our own wants, our own desires, but by the mind of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the love of Christ, we'll have unity, we'll have, we'll have servanthood in the church. Number one, like-minded, as Lewis says again. Number two, having the same mind, having the same love. I think Paul's picking up on what he already said. Christ's love comforts us. Christ's love will flow through us. Now, Paul is not talking about uniformity. Paul is talking about unity. There's a difference. Unity is a matter of the heart. It comes from within. Unity. Uniformity is pressure from the outside. It's agreeing without love. We all do not have the same ideas and the same gifts and abilities but we can't all express the love of Christ to each other. We can, we can all agree in the unity of the gospel and the glory of God. Same mind, same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I think the NIV says being one in spirit and purpose. There's, there's a oneness, a conviction, a motivation united in, in one purpose, doing, working together toward the same purpose. Have you ever seen like mountain climbers? Like I'll never climb a mountain like hanging there. You ever see them? I mean, it's just, it, to me that is just crazy, but they love it. And they're linking chains on one another as they're going up together. And there's a rope. So if one falls, they won't fall to their death. They're being caught. And, and they're working together up the side of the mountain so they can get to the top and say we made it, whatever. But that's what they want to do. What a picture of the very essence of the unity of the church. Each one bound together in the gospel by the Lord, by his spirit, working together as we walk with God. One purpose, to further the gospel, to bring glory to God. The essentials of our unity, the foundation. The essence of our unity, what does that look like? What is, what is, it, what is, what is the essence? And now, I think what flows from that if you have the essentials down, you have the essence down, now you have the expression. How, does, how do we live life out in unity? He starts in verse 3 with the negative. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition, that, that ugly self-promotion, that, that attitude of prominence, a competitive spirit. 
When you feel like you've got to win every single argument each and every time. Selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Conceit. Conceit talks about a person that's, that's kind of no substance. They, 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 they think they do, but they don't. I think it was Jeremiah. David Jeremiah said, like a balloon, the larger balloon stretches on the outside, the bigger the emptiness is on the inside. Do nothing from selfish ambition or this puffed-upness in conceit. But, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's a tough one, right? More significant than yourselves. Right? We secretly believe that we're better than those around us. But family, there can never be unity, Paul is saying, when there's pride. But humility is a prerequisite for unity and servanthood. The word humility is often, has been often used in first century and antiquity, uh, something negative to describe uh, the mentality of a slave in a negative term, but it uh, means like shabby or low or, or common. But in the New Testament, we see something very positive about humility, obviously. Dr. Neil Anderson says humility is confidence properly placed. Confidence properly placed. Romans 12.3 says this, For by the grace, Paul writes, for by grace, unmerited favor, unearned love of God, for by grace given me, I say to everyone, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. To consider others better than yourself does not mean that there's no personal concerns. They should always be overlooked. But it, it is a realistical, uh, real, uh, realistical pra- appraisal of oneself. And the recognition that everyone, all human beings are created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. He goes on in verse 4, Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. To look, to fix your attention on the, on the interest of others. And some of us, honestly, we need to take our eyes off ourselves and literally lift them and look at those around us. Jesus taught in Mark 10, Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all, servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, let's get real personal. You're welcome. How do you consider, how do you count someone ahead of you, above you, in preference to you, as more significant than you, when you think, honestly think, that you are every bit their equal, and in some ways, inferior. Do you do it through false humility? We're, no, I don't think so. We, we're not being told to think less of ourselves. Just think of yourself less. We're not asking, Paul's not asking us to deny our giftedness, our abilities, our talents, and our capacities. Yet we're called to count others as more significant than yourselves. But if we're honest, there are times that we may know more. We, we may have more. We may be more mature, more morally upstanding than the person we're called to show humility to and to, to look out for their interests, 
to humble ourselves. We're called to count others more significant. But I'm smarter. I, I, I work hard. I'm more resourceful. I'm more of a decent person than they are. But what do we do when we do that? We're measuring ourselves against our strengths and the weaknesses of our brothers and sisters. But what the Apostle Paul is getting ready to show us as he continues down this, down this text is that we are to consider Christ. Guess what? He's smarter than you. He works harder than you. He has more than you. He's better than you. In fact, he is perfect in every way. And yet he has humbled himself for you, for me. Listen, no matter how humble you are, no matter how much you consider others more significant than yourself, even if someone is beneath you in some ways, you will never ever humble, humbly serve someone lower than yourself in contrast to Christ humbling himself and serving you, serving me, and stooping as low as he went as our Savior. That's what he's getting ready to say. You will never, and I will never be equal with him. You will never surpass Christ. You will never approach how far he was and humbled himself for you and for me, ever. Paul says the very first the very first thing in unity, the very first thing in counting one another as more significant than ourselves is looking to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in the gospel. Gauge yourself against his greatness and that will show you the smallness of our greatness and you'll be ready to live humbly and in unity. The gospel, Paul will write in as we continue, verse 6, verse 5 and 6, the gospel is our example. The, 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 the coming of Jesus is our example to live humbly and in unity. That's the point. Now, let me just say this really clear. We have to first recognize, listen, we have to first be clear. The gospel, the gospel has but before the gospel can become our example for life, before the gospel can become our example in life, it must first become the experience for life, okay? The gospel becomes, before the gospel becomes our example, it has to first be our life, Okay? We must recognize that we are dead in our sins, that we are without hope, and that we are completely unable to have life, eternal life on our own. That's the gospel. The gospel is our example, yes, but the gospel, first and foremost, must be our life itself. In the atoning work, the glorious resurrection of Jesus, when that becomes our reality, our life, then we could bring the application of the gospel, the example of the gospel, into proper focus. So what we don't want to say is the gospel, all that Jesus accomplished, the only thing he did was give us an example. That's what we don't want to say. What we want to say is the gospel is the work of the perfect life, atoning death, wrapped, absorbing sacrifice of Jesus... And when that becomes our life, then we can take the application of that and live our life pressing into the gospel. When Paul confronted Peter about his racism, he told him he was not walking in truth, in step in truth of the gospel. 
When the Holy Spirit reveals sin in our lives, we are to use the gospel, apply the gospel to our hearts. If we're struggling with forgiveness, we apply the gospel of forgiveness to our lives. We're struggling with selfishness, a lack of generosity, we apply the gospel. We're struggling with our relationship in our homes, we apply the gospel. So there is an application, an example of it, but first, there's a resting in the truth of what Christ has done. So let me quote one thing and then we'll move on. Dr. Tim Quello, you've heard me quote this before. I just love this quote. He said this, we never get beyond the gospel to something more advanced. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. The main problem in the Christian life, then, is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in and on all parts of our life, end quote. That's what Paul's getting ready to do. Paul's going to show us what Christ is, what Christ has done, and say, use that as an example of what he's done for you to live in unity and in humility. Verses 5 through 11. We see the humility of Christ as the gospel, as our example. He starts at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We want to walk, you want to walk Worthy of the gospel, we want to be citizens of the gospel, uh, uh, worthy of the gospel in unity. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude, have this humble servanthood of Christ. It's the only means of unity, as the Bible teaches. The way up is the way down. The way to glorification is the way of humiliation. The Lord himself tells us to humble ourselves that he will, in due season, exalt us. Paul says, have this mind among yourself, which is in Christ He's commending this attitude of humility uh, and, 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 and understanding and, and, and unity, as we will see in the gospel. And he exhorts them to pursue Jesus, to pursue what Jesus has done, to stimulate humility and unity among the congregation. And Paul exhorts them to do so. So how do we do that? I mean, number one, Paul begins to show them about what a humble servant looks like and how to get unity by starting where none of us will ever be. The declaration of his deity, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with a God a thing to be grasped. We push to be on top. Jesus stopped. Jesus starts on top and pushes to the bottom. He started a place we could not fathom begins where he alone begins as God. In fact, the phrase, who though he was, NIV, the word being, who being, that word means the very essence of a person, something that cannot be changed. It is a Greek participle in the present tense, and it's declaring his eternity in his being. Literally, it means to exist originally. And what Paul is saying right here off the jump, is that Lord Jesus Christ existed from everlasting to everlasting in the form of God, who through his being. Now the word form, uh, look, in, look at verse 6, who through the, was in the form of God. That word form is the word morphe. It's important to understand that because 
The word morphe does not first form. We think of form, we think of, we see something in form, a form of something. But in the Greek language, it does not refer to a shape of something, but the outward expression of something that was intrinsically inside, the intrinsic nature. 2 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes this, we Christians are being morphed, being transformed into the image of Christ. He doesn't mean that we're, we're physically looking like him, although our actions will see that, hopefully will see us living more like Jesus, but he's talking about is the conformity inwardly, internally, the attributes and characteristics of Christ lived out in us. Let, let me explain it with an illustration. Some of you like the Olympics. I don't know if you do, but if you watch the Olympics and you watch a, 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 the gold winner, the gold medal winner of figure skating, you would say that that person, the, the girl or the man, had excellent form. You probably wouldn't be talking about their body. What you would be talking about is how the, 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 the outward expression that they gave in their figure skating was excellent because of their inward ability to skate. You understand that? Their form was magnificent. What Paul is saying here, though he was in the form of God, and when he says that, when he's in the form of God, he's speaking of Jesus' preexistence and divine nature. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's not a re- just a reflector of God's glory. He is the one who radiates the glory of God shining forth his infinite glory with the Father. The very existence of Christ was God in his nature and in the expression of his nature, he is fully God. He continues. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See that? Though in the form of God, Nature of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word grasp could mean two different things. Theologians are, are, are not really sure exactly, but it, it, both of them are true, so that's good. The first meaning could mean that Jesus did not seize, did not snatch, did not hold on to, clutch to his deity. As you know, Lucifer, as you know the story of Isaiah, he said, I want to be like the most high God, this cherubim, this angel. I want to be like God. I want to, I want to be equal with God. He tried to snatch it and seize it, and God kicked him out of heaven for it. Jesus didn't need to do that, for his quality with God was not something he needed to seize, he needed to grasp. It was his legitimately by nature as God. The second meaning could, and I I lean this way, could mean that the quality with God was not something to to be grasped or clung to. He possessed equality with God, but what he gave up and what he released was the expression of it. I think that's a better understanding. So that even though Christ already existed as God, in essence and substance, equal with God, he resolved not to cling to the expression of his deity. MacArthur writes this, though Christ had all the rights, privileges, and honor of deity, which he was worthy of and could never be disqualified from, his attitude was not to cling to those things or his position, but to be willing to give them up for a season, end quote. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Very important. It was not the possession of his deity that was released from his grasp, but the expression of his deity. The idea is that he did not hold to his equality with God as something to use for his own advantage. I mean, think of the text. 
Remember chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Not being selfish in humility, count others more significant than yourself, looking out not only for your interests, but to the interest of others. The deity and humility of the pre-incarnate Christ who existed from eternity past, God himself, who would rather than viewing his equality with God as something to keep, he saw it as a qualifying him for his humble condescension to earth to save his people. How did he do that? How did his eternal nature not change, but the expression of it changed? Look at the next text. The condescension of his humility. He emptied himself and became a man. Verse 7. But he emptied himself. And and the million-dollar question, we'll spend a little bit of time. We could spend 40 years. More ink has been spilt on this, I think, than anything else. What did he empty himself of? We know he didn't empty himself of his deity. A God who has not God is not God at all. Anyone who could empty himself of their deity is not deity. So we know that's not true. But what does the scripture teach us? We have to be careful. But there's a couple of things we can say. What he emptied himself. We know he emptied himself of his heavenly glory. We know that from John 17. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. I accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We know he emptied himself of his riches, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in heaven, yet for your sake he became poor, the incarnation, and that by his poverty you might become rich. That is our salvation. We know he gave up some independent use or exercise of his will and authority. Jesus said, I come not to do my will, but the Father who sent me. I only hear and do what what I hear and do what the Father tells me to do. I came not to do my will. What did he say in the garden? My, not my will, but thine be done. He gave us some of his omniscience. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. Jesus himself said that day or the hour no one knows. Not even Harold Camping. He might know now. He's not with us anymore. But anyway, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I think the best interpretation I could find, without getting too squirrely, is... Uh, Christ's self-emptying was a veiling of his pre-incarnate glory that he had with the Father and a willful surrendering of some independent use or exercises of his will, of his authority, I could call angels, and his attributes. That's the best we can do. But I, I think if we stay here in the text, the key to understanding what happened and what he emptied himself of is understanding that he took on something and became something he wasn't. Verse 7 took on something and became something he wasn't. Verse 7. Look at the word taking. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The word taking is not exchanging, but an addition. He did not cease to be God, but the self-emptying permitted the addition of his humanity to his eternal existence. He took on humanity. He did not leave off his deity. If I was the greatest boxer in the world and I had to tie one hand behind my back to go into my next bout, I would still be the greatest fighter in the world, but I would be limited because I only got one arm. God self-limited himself when he took on humanity. And the condescension continues. Look at the phrase. He became uh, the form of a servant. So he took on the form of a servant. He took on humanity, took on the form of a servant. That's that word uh, morphe again. Jesus did not just serve. He actually had the attitude and characteristics and attributes of a slave. 
totally submissive to the Father. Gladly, willingly submissive to the Father. He became the ultimate expression of humility and service to others. He became the slave of God to the point of serving our needs and the Father's ultimate will. And he did that by becoming a man. Look again at the text. Being found, excuse me, in the form, morphe, intrinsic, servanthood, inwardly, showing himself outwardly, being born, though, in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Now, that word form is not morphe. Interesting, Paul switches. Now he's talking about the outward appearance of Jesus. So that Jesus, when he came, he is fully human. Schema is the Greek word. That when you see him, the form, the outward appearance, he looked and he was a human, fully human, fully God. And fully me, grew up like all other kids, was born like all other kids, yes, to a virgin girl, but he came the natural way. He was hungry, he was tired, he learned, he grew. He was thirsty, he was angry, he learned to trade, worked for a living, fully human, without sin, and fully divine. That's, that's the mystery of the incarnation. He left his glory, became a servant, became like one of us, and that's not even, he's not even done. There's still more of stepping down. Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see? He voluntarily steps down from the very presence of God in, in heavenly glory, in all his riches, to die for you and me. He died the most dreadful deaths, the cruelest and shameful, most shameful way a man could die in that day. And Paul says, that the demonstration of his humility is the becoming obedient to death, even death, a vile death of crucifixion. That's as low as it goes. It is high as it goes, and it is low as it goes. Roman law, Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. Jews believed the person being crucified died as a curse who's being hung on a tree. Galatians 3 tells us that Jesus bore our curse when he died on that tree. And here is Jesus, the pre-existent one, the Lord of glory, dying for on the cross for sinners, enduring physical agony of the cross, the abandonment, the shame. He received the wrath of God in our place for our sins, demonstrating clearly his humility, stepping down from his rightful place of glory and voluntarily laying down his life. What a God and what a savior. And look what happens next. The exaltation. Declaration of his deity, the condescension of his humility, and the exaltation of his supremacy. The sovereign Lord becomes a servant. The sovereign becomes a servant and was submissive in order that he may be our sacrifice. And was exalted to the highest place again this time, this time family, as the God-man. The exaltation of his lordship, at least threefold here in our text, and we're going to wrap it up. Number one, he is the reigning lord. Look at verse nine. Verse eight, point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, all that he has accomplished, all of his submission, his humiliation, his condescension, all that he did, finding himself from glory to the cross, all of that, therefore, 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Highly exalted, super exalted, mega exalted, hyper exalted. No one else is exalted like Jesus. Jesus' exaltation is in a class all by himself. And it's not any name. It's not even a name. It is the name. Notice that? The name. God has highly exalted him. Bestowed on him the name. Now, the name that they're talking about is not Jesus. Jesus is his incarnation, his, 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 his name that was given to him at his birth. Yes, it means save, Jesus saved. But in verse 11, we learn that the name that was given to him is the name Lord. And that's very important. Because in Isaiah, and we're going to be doing Isaiah come this winter, in Isaiah chapter 42, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah writes this. In the Old Testament, before the coming of Christ, Isaiah writes this about God. Yahweh, Elohim, God Almighty of the Old Testament. He writes this. I am the Lord, chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, Yahweh. That is my name, my glory I give to no other. And yet Paul says, no, 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 Jesus Christ is Yahweh, or Christos in the Greek. Isaiah 45, 22. Isaiah says this, Old Testament. Turn to me, God is saying, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. To me, every knee will bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Sound familiar? I mean, you can't miss the connection. Jesus is Yahweh. That's the name above all names. He is what Isaiah said about in chapter 42 and 45. Now, it's not like Jesus wasn't Lord or the Messiah before his death, burial, and resurrection, as John Piper says. John Piper says this, but he, but he had not fulfilled the mission of the Messiah yet until he died and rose for our sins. And therefore, before his death and resurrection, the lordship of Christ over the world had not been brought to full actuality. In order to be acclaimed Messiah and Lord, the Son of God had to come, defeat the enemy, lead his people out of bondage and triumph over sin, Satan, and death. He did it on Good Friday and Easter. The name, he writes, is above every name. Therefore, his Lord is Lord, victorious over his enemies, the Lord who has purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, end quote. He was always God, but now he's exalted as the God-man, the man Jesus Christ, who, as very God, voluntarily veiled his glory, now has placed upon his shoulders all the majesty, all the dignity, and all the glory of deity itself. He is the reigning Lord, but he's also the ruling Lord, verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Those in heaven will hit the ground before his glory, angels and believers that have gone before us, those on earth will bow their knee to Jesus. That includes skeptics, agnostics, atheists, those who mock him, and those under the earth, listen, who reject him, Satan, his demons, unbelievers, will bow their knee. Don't think for a moment that people in hell don't know that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord of hell. He's Lord of the universe. And within the everlasting torment and suffering that they are going under because of their rejection of Christ, the one who paid the penalty for their sins, they reject that. They're dying for the punishment of their sins. There's an affirmation of lordship in hell. The Reigning Lord, ruling Lord, and finally the radiant Lord. Some may say, you know what, Isaiah 45 
makes it clear there's only one God, one Savior, one Lord, one glory, and therefore God must be very angry or, or that's blasphemy. No, it's the Trinity. In many ways, the Trinity is a mystery, but we know from the scriptures that the Son is glorified when the Father is glorified. Perfect glory to the Son is perfect glory to the Father. Jesus said himself in John 17 again, I've glorified you on earth, now glorify me with the glory we had from the very beginning. From the very beginning, before the world existed. Finite, not finite glory, but infinite glory. That's the mystery of the, of the Trinity. That God is glorified when the Son is glorified. That God is glorified when His Son is exalted. God is exalted in what He accomplished in the gospel. There's no one, there's no competition, no blasphemy, no rivalry, only glory, delight, and honor. God is glorified in all that the Son is glorified in. And when God is glorified, the Son is lifted up, the Son is exalted, and God gets the glory. Jesus said this, now is the man of God, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Family, it's just inseparable. It's inseparable. The glory of the Son, the glory of the Father. So the profession of his name is Lord, and the purpose of his exaltation is the glory of God. The display of the infinite beauty, the incalculable worth of God. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're exalting, glorifying God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, the humiliation, exaltation of Christ, bowing your knee and confessing him as Lord and Savior. And as the band comes up, let me just give this last exhortation to you. If you're here this morning, better to confess it now. Better to confess it now than go on and confessing it in heaven, confessing it now, confessing it in glory for eternity. Jesus Christ is Lord with joy and hope and love rather than confessing it eternally in bitterness and remorse forever in hell. It's much better now to bow willingly where there's still time. It's not too late. Confess him, love him, worship him. He voluntarily humbled himself so that you can have life. And you today have given an option to do it today. To do it today. Humbly acknowledging Jesus is Lord. That's how you live worthy of the gospel. That's how you live in unity. That's how you live in unity. By worshiping and bowing your knee to the one who left. Place will never understand. That's how you look out for the interest of others. You look at the one who left a place we could never understand to the lowest place that we could never understand. And you see that in the gospel. And you can have love and unity in the church. Amen.